You know, there are many countless reasons why we worship Jesus Christ. Countless reasons. We worship him for his deity, for his supremacy, for his authority. We worship him for his love. We worship him for his incarnation. That without ever ceasing to be fully God, he became fully man. We worship him for his atonement, his sin-bearing, sacrificial death in the place of hell-deserving sinners like you and me. You see, we rightly and appropriately worship Jesus Christ for all that he is as Lord and God and King and Savior and treasure of the soul. It's just that among the many reasons why we don't often consider why Christ is worthy of our worship and highest allegiance, get this, is his perfect obedience and submission to the Father. We don't have to think of that. That his perfect obedience to the Father and submission to the Word is one of the reasons why he is worthy of our worship. That he was faithful to the Father. That he was submissive to the Scriptures. That he was perfectly obedient to the will of the Father. That he was, as Hebrews 7 tells us, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He was sinless. We don't often think about the fact that he had to be submissive. He had to be humble. He had to be obedient and even sinless to be our Savior because if we do not have a perfectly obedient Savior, then we did not have a sinless sacrifice hanging on the cross. And yet one of the reasons why we worship Jesus Christ and even one of the reasons why we obey Jesus Christ is precisely because he perfectly obeyed the Father. And 700 years before he ever even appeared on the planet, that's exactly what we see in the text. The humble, submissive obedience of Jesus Christ, which means, once again, Isaiah plays the card of prophecy this morning. In fact, it's prophecy and poetry all combined together in what I call a messianic poem of hope. A messianic poem of hope. And there are lots of these in the book of Isaiah. One in chapter 42, chapter 49, here in chapter 50, one in chapter 53, and in chapter 61. These are poetic, prophetic portrayals of Jesus Christ and all that he would do to end the reign of sin and terror in the world. And you read these poems and there is no mistaking who it is. It has to be Christ. It just has to be Christ. And yet one of the things that makes these poems so profound is the title that he's given. The title that he's given, because because even though he's God, and he is king, and redeemer, and savior, and judge, and the one who will crush the serpent's head and shatter kings in the day of his wrath, even though he is all of those things and more, the title that Isaiah gives to the Messiah, get this, is the servant. The servant. 
Think about how profound that is. That the very Savior who saves the human race serves the human race. And how he serves the human race is by suffering for the human race. Is it not exactly what Christ said in Mark 10, 45? The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You understand, this would be no conventional hero. He would and did shatter all human expectations. He would become the hero by being treated as the villain. Weakness would be his power. He would destroy death by dying. He would crush evil by taking it upon himself and then rise triumphant from the grave. In chapter 53, we're told of the servant's death, that he would die, that he would be pierced for transgressions. He would be crushed for iniquities. And yet, and yet this servant poem here in chapter 50 is the one we often skip over, and yet we dare not skip over it. We dare not pass over because in this poem we see the obedience of Christ and the earthly obedience of Christ, you understand, underpins the very gospel by which we are saved. You see, Isaiah 53 must be preceded by Isaiah 50 because to fail to consider the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ is to fail in our worship of him. prepare you for what you're about to hear. Let me just ask you, how is your trust in Christ this morning? How is your hope in Christ this morning? Because yes, yes, Christ is our example. Yes, he's our substitute. Yes, he is our intercessor. Yes, he is our advocate. Yes, he is our redeemer and king and the riveting object of our worship. And yet my question is, do you believe that he is absolutely sufficient for every single dilemma of life and the soul. Perfect submission, beautiful suffering, the servant, Messiah as the answer for all. Here we go. Here's where we're headed this morning. This morning, I want you to see four features. Should I say four surprising features of the servant that guarantee salvation and final victory. Four Features, surprising features of the servant that guarantee salvation and final victory. That's where we're going. And yet, and yet, here's the thing. Before we see, before we actually see the poem of the servant, there's two things we've got to get to the bottom of. Two things we've got to figure out first. Number one, you have to remember the book of Isaiah is extremely organized. It doesn't seem it at first, but it really is. It's 66 chapters, get this, are divided into logical units, and every unit has a message that contributes to the whole, which makes sense, right? And the last unit we finished was chapters 40 through 48, and in those chapters, what did we see again and again and again, but the matchless worth and supremacy of God, that he's lofty and exalted. That he's sovereign and supreme and will not give his glory to another. And that is exactly the point of chapters 40 through 48. These poor, beleaguered Jews rotting in Babylon would see that Yahweh is God. And there is no other. 
That's 40 through 48. 49 through 55, however, is the next logical unit with a message. We saw this a couple weeks ago. If you've got your notes, look at your notes there. Look at the structure. Chapters 49 through 55 are a series of sermon, oracle-type things that go back and forth between these poems of the Messiah and the salvation he would bring. Do you see that there? Servant poem, salvation for the world. Servant poem, salvation for the world. And I'll just tell you right now that chapters 49 through 55 are absolutely massive, even central to the book of Isaiah, if not even the Bible itself. You know why? Because yes, Yahweh is sovereign. Yes, he is supreme. Yes, he will get his glory. Yes, he will save his people and bring salvation to the nations. But here's the catch. He will do that in and through the servant he sends. Through the Messiah. Through the Savior and Redeemer predicted all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. So in these servant poems, they're just so massive because here we come back. We come back full circle to the Savior who will win it all in the end. You understand, that's what the book of Isaiah is about. That's what the entire Bible is about. The supremacy of Yahweh in salvation through the servant. Or put it in New Testament terms, the glory of God through the giving of his Son. Second thing we have to get to the bottom of. We have to understand verses 1 through 3 of chapter 50. We got to get verses 1 through 3 of chapter 50 because you understand the poem of the servant, the poem of the Messiah doesn't begin until verse 4. And yet the poem of the Messiah is a response to verses 1 through 3. Because you understand the people to whom Isaiah were writing were rotting in Babylon 2,000 miles away in exile. And they deserved it. And for the most part, they believed that. For the most part, they accepted that as, as true. And yet from their dismal situation, they drew two faulty conclusions. Two faulty conclusions. Number one, they assumed Yahweh canceled the covenants. That he called it quits. That he filed for divorce. That he washed his hands of the people of Israel. He didn't do that, but it looked like he did. Second faulty conclusion, number two, they wrongly concluded that God didn't have the power to protect or deliver his people. He did have the power, but it didn't look like he did. I mean, look at him. The kingdom's divided, prone to sin, enslaved to idols. And now here they are, taken captive by Babylon. And yet, look at verse 1. Look at verse 1 and the clarification Yahweh provides. Thus says Yahweh, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or to which of my creditors did I sell you? Behold, because of your iniquities you were sold, and because of your transgressions your mother was sent away. You see it, right? The two metaphors and the two questions. Metaphor number one is divorce. Notice Yahweh's question. 
Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Now, the mother here, you know, that is the people of Judah taken to Babylon. And Yahweh asks, where are the divorce papers? Meaning, show me the proof that I canceled the covenants. That I am divorcing my wife. That I love and chose and elected by sovereign grace. And he's asking where the papers are, not because he doesn't know where they are, but because there are no papers. There is no certificate of divorce. There is nothing to sign because once you are chosen, you cannot be unchosen. Metaphor number two. Metaphor number two is going into debt. It's interesting, Exodus 21 and Leviticus 25 says that if a man were in severe enough debt, he could sell his wife or his children or himself into slavery to pay it back. That's a crushing situation. And the point is, some version of that is what the people think happened to Yahweh. So they think happened to him, that he got in over his head. That he made plans that he couldn't keep. That he got in a situation beyond his power to control, and therefore he had to sell his children to the Babylonians. And Yahweh asks, to which of my creditors did I sell you? It's a rhetorical question, meaning that didn't happen. I didn't lose control. You lost control. I didn't sell you to the Babylonians. You sold yourself through your own sins and your iniquities. I tried to warn you. For centuries, I tried to warn you through the prophets. Because notice verse 2. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, there was no answer? Was my hand surely too short for redemption? Or was there no power in me to deliver? Wait a second, wait a second. You think you're in Babylon because I couldn't protect you? That you're in the predicament you're in, the problem in your, the, the pain you're in, because my hand was too short to deliver you, you can't be serious. My power that I possess is not the problem. The problem is that you called my bluff. You ignored my word. You loved your sin. You believed in lies. And now you've got to lie in the bed that you have made. Beloved, I'm just going to level with you. Some of you might be making that very same kind of bed, even as we speak. What I mean is sin is gaining the upper hand, perhaps. Your heart is starting to harden, perhaps. Christ and his word look less and less appealing because something else has captured your affections. You're starting to turn. You're beginning to drift imperceptible even to you. You are beginning to float into the shark infested waters of sin and destruction. And you can tell, you can totally tell that something is wrong with your soul when Christ and his word and church and life in the body begins to feel optional. 
because an Old Testament version of that happened to them. But notice what Yahweh does. Brutal, though the situation was. Hopeless, though it seemed. Yahweh would, he would, he would deliver his people, not just from Babylon, but from every evil thing at the end of the age. Look at verses 2 and 3. You thought my hand was too short to redeem you. You thought I had no power to deliver you, and yet notice, behold, by my rebuke, I will dry up the sea. I will turn the rivers into a wilderness. Their fish shall stink because of lack of water, and they will die of thirst. I will clothe the heavens with blackness, and I will turn, I will cover them, this, their covering as with sackcloth. What does that even mean? What does any of that have to do with anything, especially their dismal situation? Well, you notice, you notice, don't you? You see it, don't you? The language in verses 2 and 3 is cosmic, apocalyptic, eschatological, i.e. book of Revelation kind of stuff. Guess what? That's exactly what it is. You see, Yahweh answers, get this, listen carefully, Yahweh answers the question about his power to save them with eschatology. My hand is not too short to save. My power is not lacking to deliver because at the end of the day, get this, I will dry up the sea, I will destroy the earth, I will cover the sky with blackness. And the point is, if God can do that and he can do that, then he has the power to deliver his people and he will. How is he going to do that? How is he going to save them? How is he going to deliver them? Here's the question. By what power, what means, what weapon will God use to save his people, Israel? Not just from Babylon, but even the sin that got them to Babylon. And the answer is the servant. Which brings us to the first feature of the servant. Number one, the dependence of the servant. The dependence of the serpent. Let's read verses 4 through 9 together because if you like red letter Bibles, all these words here in verses 4 through 9 should be in red because they are the very words of Christ himself. Seven centuries before he ever emerged out of Mary's womb. Here's what he says. The Lord Yahweh gave to me the tongue of a disciple that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He awakens. Morning by morning, he awakens my ear to listen like a disciple. The Lord Yahweh opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, nor did I shrink back. I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not hide my face from humiliation and from spitting. But the Lord Yahweh will help me. Therefore, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I will set my face like flint because I know that I will not be ashamed. Near is he who vindicates me, who will contend with me. Let us stand together. 
Who will bring a case against me? Let him draw near. Behold, the Lord Yahweh, he will help me. Who will condemn me? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment and the moth will eat them. That's incredible. And you can totally tell you can totally tell not only does this look and sound like Christ, but the very next verse, verse 10, identifies the speaker as the servant. This is a pre-incarnate speech of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can't miss, can't you? You cannot miss the radical difference between the people of Israel on the one hand and the character of the servant on the other. Can you? you can't miss it. The people of Israel, rebellious proud, unfaithful, and independent, and the servant was dependent, obedient, humble, and faithful, even to the point of suffering and pain. And you understand, don't you? The humble, holy dependence of the servant Jesus Christ is foundational even to the plan of salvation itself. He had to know no sin to atone for sin. He had to be everything Israel was not. He had to be everything we are not. That's exactly what he was. Speaking of his dependence, we see it in verse 4. Look at the text. He, Christ, before he was even born, Recorded speech, the Lord Yahweh gave to me the tongue of a disciple that I may know how to sustain the weary one with the word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear like a disciple. And there it is, the dependence of the servant. And notice it all begins with the name of God that he calls out. Do you see it? He calls him Lord God, or literally in the Hebrew, Adonai Yahweh. And he calls him that again, notice in verse 5. And again in verse 7. And again in verse 9. That is not a minor detail at all. The very name of God with which the servant addresses God reveals his absolute trust and dependence and reverence for Yahweh as sovereign and supreme. It's one of the most magnificent titles of God in the Bible. Adonai or Lord means the sovereign one. Yahweh is the very name of God emphasizing his eternality or his, and his self-existence. The servant models for us trusting God as matchless and supreme. Do you see but notice carefully, the servant mentions two things that Yahweh would do for him. First, he says, the Lord Yahweh gave to me the tongue of a disciple, Lord, the tongue of those who are taught. Meaning what? Meaning what? Listen very carefully. The servant would not and did not ever say anything that was not from Yahweh. Not one thing. Nothing would be imbalanced. Nothing would need correction. Nothing would be off the mark. Nothing would ever be inconsistent with Scripture. Nothing would ever be his own private thoughts or speculations or insights or philosophies or anything that didn't come from Yahweh or Scripture. Rather, the only thing the servant would ever say would be from the sacred text or directly revealed from Yahweh. That's what's embedded in that statement. He was the perfect disciple, truth incarnate. 
The Bible in human form. No wonder, no, no wonder the Gospel of John calls him the Word made flesh. He was truth in literal, physical, tangible human form. And when Jesus Christ came to earth, that's exactly what we see, isn't it? John 7, 16. My teaching is not my own, but from the Father who sent me. John 12, 48. I do not speak from myself. The Father who sent me gave to me a command what to say and what to speak, which is pretty compelling if we're being honest, isn't it? Because if the goal of our lives is to be like Christ, and that absolutely is the goal of our lives, then where that begins, what that even looks like, is lives and mouths filled with the Word of God, isn't it? To have the Word of God supreme and central in our lives and in our affections, that's precisely what Jesus Christ was like. To be like Jesus, you speak like Jesus. And how he spoke, what he spoke, was the word of God at the center of his life, which raises the question, do you have the tongue of disciples? What I mean is, does your speech, does your life reflect one who has had long, long meditation on the sacred text of Holy Scripture? Which looks like what exactly? Notice the text. The Lord Yahweh gave to me the tongue of a disciple that I may know how to sustain the weary one with the word. That is incredible, isn't it? What, what a powerful detail. That the defining characteristic of the speech of the servant was that he knew how to sustain weary souls with the words of his mouth. Not just because he was God, but because precisely he spoke the word of God. And, and when we get to the Gospels, this is exactly what we see, isn't it? It's exactly what we see. The Sermon on the Mount. The man of little faith. The woman at the well, Christ encountered weary, fearful, struggling souls crushed by sin, and yet he knew exactly how to resurrect their hope. And you understand, beloved, don't you, that that is our role in one another's lives? That's your role in my life. That's my role in your life that we are called to mediate hope and health and healing to one another's hearts through the ministry of the word. Hugs are fine. Shoulders are okay to cry on for a season, but truth changes lives. And you probably know this, but health experts, health experts are concerned about people's morning routines. Have you heard about this? They're concerned about people's morning routines because how you spend your morning determines not only the trajectory of your day, but maybe even the trajectory of your life. They're concerned that people sleep too late and eat too much and waste their time and spend way too much time looking at a screen, and yet the morning routine of the servant is exactly what we see. Look at the end of verse 4. He, that is Yahweh, Yahweh awakens me. 
Morning by morning, he awakens my ear to listen like a disciple. Do you see it? The messianic morning routine. Every morning he woke up. In fact, what the text says is that Yahweh woke him up not to listen to music or hear the news, but Yahweh opened his ear to listen to him, to listen to him, to listen like a disciple. You, you understand. Do you know what that word disciple means? It means one who is taught, one who learns which means Jesus Christ gave himself every single morning to hearing from the Father, learning from the Father, being taught by the Father, meditating on the Word of God. How many times do we encounter in the Gospel again and again the disciples rolling out of bed? And Christ had already been up for hours with the Father and communion, sacred meditation on the word and prayer. So my point is, if any of this proves anything, beloved, it proves two things. One, the dependence of the servant on Yahweh. And number two, it proves that this was the opposite of Israel. It's the opposite of Israel. The servant was everything. Israel was not. The servant was everything. We are not and what he was was dependent, and his dependence is foundational to our redemption. Feature number two. Number two, the obedience of the servant. We looked at the dependence of the servant, now the obedience of the servant. Because you understand, don't you? Jesus Christ had to obey. He had to obey. He had to know no sin to become sin on our behalf. And that's exactly what we see in verse 5. Look at the text. The Lord Yahweh opened my ear. There it is again, that title. The Lord Yahweh, showing his reverence, dependence on Yahweh. The Lord Yahweh opened my ear. Here it is. And I was not rebellious. And I did not shrink back. Do you see? He didn't rebel. He didn't shrink back, which is no surprise. After all, we reason he's God. Of course he obeyed. This was a cakewalk, a walk in the park, a day at the beach, a picnic. It was easy for him to obey, right? And yet never, never forget, beloved, I'm serious, stay with me. Never forget, Christ never used his deity to protect him from his humanity. In other words, he never pulled the parachute of his deity to save him from the impact of his humanity. He arrived as a man and he lived it all. And Hebrews 4.15, tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. The Lord opened my ear and I was not rebellious. And that word rebellious there in the text, that's kind of a sensitive word. That's kind of a touchy word. Because that's the word that they were described, used to describe them ever since the days of Moses. And even the Israel's finest representatives rebelled. Moses rebelled. David rebelled. Solomon rebelled. Jeremiah rebelled. Ezekiel rebelled. Jonah rebelled. The servant never once, not ever rebelled. And we marvel at the Olympics, right? We marvel at the Olympics. Every year there's new records broken. There's faster times. 
There's longer jumps. There's heavier weights. There, there's further throws. And yet, and yet, impressive though all those records are, they're still not perfect, are they? Think about it. They're still not perfect. The three-minute and 43-second mile record is still three minutes and 43 seconds slower than zero. My point is, his sins were zero. And no one ever, ever matched his record he loved and trusted and obeyed the Father with absolute perfection. And if, if he slipped even in the slightest, the entire plan of salvation unravels and we go to hell forever. Notice, notice, not only did he never rebel, he never even hesitated to obey. Verse 5, I did not rebel, here it is, nor did I shrink back. Meaning out of fear, out of pressure out of threat of pain or danger, he, never once did he even delay in his obedience to Yahweh. He never wavered. He never shrank back, which implies there were moments in his life when one would be tempted to waver and shrink back. And as we're about to see, there were those moments, but never once did he do so. Because as it turns out, the servant was sin. 1 Peter 2.22, he committed no sin and no deceit was in his mouth. 1 John 3.5, he appeared to take away sins and in him is no sin. Hebrews 7.26, he's holy and innocent and undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. And that matters, doesn't it? That matters, doesn't it? The sinless submission of the servant matters for you and for me and our salvation. Because if he knew sin, if he was acquainted with sin, if he himself had committed sin, well, then his death would simply be a martyrdom. Respectable to be sure, but needing redemption himself. If he was a sinner, he could not save sinners. If he deserved God's wrath, he could not appease God's wrath. And yet the one who least deserved God's wrath took God's wrath. And this was always the plan. And here's why this matters, beloved. Here's why. Listen carefully. This, this is so Crucial, you cannot miss this. Here's why the blameless, sinless righteousness of Jesus Christ matters to you. Ready? When you put your faith in Christ, you didn't just change your beliefs. You didn't just affirm some historical facts, although that's true. Even more than that, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, here it is, all of the blameless, righteous, flawless, thoughtless, perfect obedience of Christ was transferred to your bankrupt spiritual bank accounts so that the Father now sees you with the righteousness of his Son. That's called imputation. 
The Father imputes, credits, declares us to be righteous. It's not pretend. This is real. This is real. This is what Paul meant in Romans 8.1 when he said, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we don't, we don't love this doctrine the way we should because we don't know how to view our lives through two different angles. All we see is our own sin and struggles and it fills our souls with grief. And that's true and it should. But the Bible is clear, beloved. The Bible is clear. Don't miss this. The Bible is clear that there is also a legal judicial verdict and status before the Father that never, ever changes. You see, when you put your faith in the righteous one, legally, officially, and cosmically before the judgment seat of God, his very righteousness became our own. Or in the words of 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Do you see? Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on the servant's name. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may then we in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before his throne. Feature number three. We're almost home. Feature number three of the servant, number three, the violence upon the servant. The violence upon the servant, because, beloved, you have to understand Ever since chapter 42, ever since chapter 42, a picture has been emerging. A story has become clearer about the servant. It's a story filled with violence, and pain, and abuse, and murder. You see, Isaiah is very clear. Isaiah understands the complex nature, the paradoxical nature of the servant's life. You see, he would be king and reign as supreme. He would one day. He would have a kingdom. And he would make all things be the way they ought to be. And he would bring paradise back to the earth. But here's the catch. The path to get to that kingdom and that paradise would be absolutely horrendous and brutal, right? He would be, Isaiah 53 says, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. In the last servant poem in chapter 49, it says that he would be the abhorred one. He would be the despised one. He would be the hated one. People would hate him. And here in the third servant poem, Isaiah reveals just how hated he would be. Look at verse 5. Starting in verse 5, the Lord Yahweh opened my ear and I was not rebellious, nor did I shrink back. Verse 6, I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not hide my face from, humili from humiliation and from spitting. 
It doesn't say much, but it says enough, doesn't it? It says enough the servant would and did suffer violence and cruelty, inhumane, cold-hearted brutality. And you can see the connection with verse 5, can't you? It, it, It was completely undeserved. He didn't suffer because he was wicked. He seemed to suffer precisely because he was righteous. He was obedient and faithful, even if it meant his pain, even if it meant his suffering and abuse. And that's exactly what happened. And notice carefully, notice verse 6, that the nature of the violence, this wasn't a fair fight, one-on-one. Well, this was a crowd, wasn't it? See the plural verbs there? This was an angry mob, a gang of violent men surrounding the servant close enough to rip out his beard and spit in his face. And you could tell the violence they inflicted wasn't just physical pain, but psychological pain. Because when you really want to hurt someone, you not only try to break their body, you try to break their spirit. And here we see they try to break them both. Notice the mob would beat his back, which means cheap shot, sucker punch, beating him when he's down. They would rip out his beard, not only brutally painful, but in that day, one of the most degrading and and heinous insults, the the very heights of disgust and contempt. It says he didn't hide his face from humiliation. Literally in the Hebrew, humiliations, plural, which means there was a lot of them and also the intensity of their cruelty. And they spit in his face. Even in our day, that's the lowest of the low. You don't do that to people unless you really, really hate them. And that's exactly what happened. When we get to the Gospels, that's what we see, isn't it? Jewish mercenaries, the entire Sanhedrin, a Roman cohort, a battalion of soldiers taking turns, beating and assaulting and slapping and spitting and lashing and whipping the only sinless man who ever lived in history. And yet you notice, don't you? You notice, don't you? That all the sufferings he would endure he would endure them voluntarily, deliberately, intentionally, willingly, on purpose. Look at the verbs. Verse 6, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not hide my face from humiliation and from spitting. He gave his body to be beaten. He didn't hide his face from spitting or disgrace. He didn't run. He didn't flee. He he didn't defend himself. He didn't fight back, nor even really express any outrage over the evil he suffered. Rather, he just took it. Not like a man, but like a servant king who died in the place of man. You understand, he wasn't a helpless Victim in the clutches of his enemies. He was a victorious king who died for his enemies. The sufferings he endured, he endured for others in their place. And I know you know that. You have heard that since you were in diapers. I know you know that. But my question for you is, do you know that? That salvation could only be bought with blood. Did you know that? 
That, that sin is an infinitely evil crime against an infinitely worthy God, which deserves an infinite punishment. But God, in His love, made a way for the wrath that you deserve to be placed upon another, upon a substitute who stands in our place. Because he is God, and because he is sinless, his death wasn't just a martyrdom. It wasn't just this really nice gesture, really loving thing to do. No, what this was, was an atonement. Real sins were paid for there. Real souls were purchased there. Real wrath for real sinners was executed upon the servant there. And what I really want to know is what I'm eager to know is, have you ever really truly trusted in the servant? Have you yielded to him? The sinless, sin-bearing servant who suffered for sinners? I'm talking to non-Christians now. And people who think they're saved and are not saved. Let me ask you this. Have you despaired in your worthless works to save you from the wrath of God? Have you despaired in that? In the vile waste that seeps from the sewer which is your heart? Have you ever been staggered and undone by the reality that sin isn't just some moral botch easily overlooked, but that sin is treason, cosmic treason against the Creator. Because until you see that sin is deep and vile, only then will you see that salvation is a true rescue of the helpless. Feature number four. And then we're done. Feature number four, the confidence of the servant. The confidence of the servant. Because that's the question, isn't it? How on earth could he endure such suffering? Right? Why, what, what explanation can be given for why he would drink the poison cup of pain and put himself through the grinder of suffering? What would possess him to do that unless he knew that he would be vindicated? That's exactly what we see. Starting in, uh, look at verses 7 through 9, starting in verse 6. He gave his back to those who beat him, right? His cheeks to those who pluck out the beard wouldn't hide his face from humiliation and from spitting. Here it is, verse 7. But the Lord Yahweh will help me. Therefore, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I will set my face like flint because I know I will not be ashamed. Do you feel the collision there? I will suffer brutally. I will suffer unjustly. But the Lord Yahweh will help me. And when it says 
help him. It doesn't merely mean help him make it through the pain. No, he's talking about his vindication. He he means that he's going to be exonerated in the end, vindicated in the end. That's why he says, therefore, therefore, I will not be ashamed. Therefore, I will set my face like flint because I know I will not be ashamed. You know the meaning of that expression, set your face like flint? You know what that means? It means to be firmly set in an immovable direction. That you are determined, undaunted, unwavering, fearless and stubborn in your commitment to God's decree. And I think it's very interesting, don't you, that Luke 9.51 picks up on this language here? That in the context of the sufferings of Christ, it says, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. Not because he didn't know about the sufferings, but precisely because he did. The servant, the servant knew that the thought that, that Yahweh would intervene, not to save him from the sufferings, but rather, but rather to turn his sufferings on his on their head, so that instead of being disgraced and his and, and defeated, those sufferings would be his glory and his victory. Do you see? It's exactly what Hebrews 12, 2 is talking about. That we look to Christ, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He knew he would be vindicated. He knew he would be exonerated. He, he knew he would be exalted, which is why he says what he does in verses 8 and 9. Look at the text. It's actually a courtroom scene. He uses trial language to show his trust in Yahweh's vindication. Near is he who vindicates me, who will contend with me. Let us stand together. Who has a case against me? Let him draw near. Do you see it? His absolute trust in Yahweh's vindication. What did it matter what anybody else thought? What did it matter what anybody else thought? And when the servant arrived, you know, they called him a liar. They called him a deceiver. They said he was insane. They said he was demon-possessed. That he cast out demons by the power of Satan. And today, what do they say? When they actually look truly honestly at what he says, they call him a bigoted, closed-minded deceiver and imposter. The Jews reject him. Buddhists minimize and ignore him. Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, and Muslims blaspheme him. And every single day for the last 2,000 years, Christ just lets people mock and lie and hate and smear his name with the filth of their contempt. But one day, the day will come when Yahweh says, enough. You don't get to talk about my son like that. Verse 9. Behold, the Lord Yahweh will help me. Who will condemn me? What's the answer? No one 
No one ever will bring a charge against the servant. Instead, what will be the outcome of Yahweh's intervention? What will be the outcome? The mocking will cease. The lies will cease. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess that Yahweh, that the servant is Yahweh to the glory of God the Father. Not only that, the end of verse 9. Behold, all of them, all the mockers, all the liars, all of them will wear out like a garment and the moth will eat them. Which is a weird analogy, right? Because that's really slow. Clothes wear out over time. Moths eat gradually. And yet that's exactly the point, beloved. It's exactly the point. The wicked look invincible from our perspective, do they not? But what the eye doesn't see is the slow decay and their destruction leading to their judgment. The the picture is haunting and profound. Little by little, every single day, the wicked are unraveling until they stand naked before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. Mark my words. And yet you noticed, I'm sure, didn't you? You you noticed, didn't you? Verses 8 and 9. Sound familiar, don't they? In fact, Paul quotes that text. Paul alludes to that text in Romans 8, 31 through 35. It's in your notes either way. I'm going to read it. If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is he who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Rather, he who was raised, who is at the right hand of the Father, who intercedes for us. The point is very simply this. Not only will God vindicate his Son but he will vindicate us who trust in his son. Do you see? His vindication will be our vindication. His defense will be our defense. His redemption will be our redemption. And what that does is free us, doesn't it? Doesn't that free us? To be hated, and mocked, and despised, and ridiculed, and even killed for our allegiance to Jesus Christ, knowing that in the end, like the servant, we will be exalted. And with that, the red letters are done. The poem is over. And it's very interesting that it ends with an appeal. The chapter ends with an appeal, and I'm going to close with the very same appeal to you, because there are two kinds of people in the world. There are two kinds of people in the world that should be interesting to you. Look at verse 10. There are those who fear Yahweh and listen to the servant. Or verse 11. There are those who kindle fire and gird themselves with firebrands or flaming arrows, which is kind of weird sounding, but what that is is an ancient poetic way to say that you trust in yourself. There are two kinds of people in the world, beloved. 
End of verse 10. There are those who put their trust in Yahweh and lean upon their God. Or end of verse 11. There are those who will lie down in the place of torment and go to hell forever. My question for you is, what I want you to ask yourselves inside your own skull at this very moment is which one of those two people are you? Which one are you? Do you fear the Lord and listen to his son? Or do you kindle your own fires and listen to yourself? Do you trust in Yahweh and rely on your God? Or are you going to the place of torment forever? I'm serious. Because that's why the servant has come. To save from sin. To save from destruction. To reconcile sinners back to God as the treasure of their souls. And yet to do that, he had to be dependent. He had to be obedient. He had to be crushed. And he had to be exalted. And soon the day will come when he will arrive to reign as king. And you are either in or you're out. And at this very moment, if you have not done so, the servant is summoning you to be in. Let's pray. Oh, great servant, great high king and eternal Lord, who brought the universe into being. You came to earth as a man. You looked like a man. You sounded like a man. You ate food like a man. You spoke like a man. You slept like a man. And yet you were fully divine. Sinless, tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. What I'm asking, O oh Lord, what I'm asking you, O oh Christ, that you would use your word empowered by the Spirit to open all of our eyes to your beauty, to those who do not know you, who think they do, but they don't. They find you boring. So many other things in this life are way more interesting to, to, to them than you. I pray that you would intervene even at this moment and break them. Break them. And help them to see your all-surpassing beauty. And those of us Lord, who in the room know you, we know you, no thanks to ourselves. You did that for us. And yet we are so distracted. We are so easily discouraged. We are so easily enticed by sin. And I just pray that you would work in our lives, that we would see that the pleasures of sin do not hold a candle to your glory. May we love you. May we trust you. May we obey like you and put you on display. It's your matchless name that we pray. Amen.